The following is a message by Professor Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Our God and our Father, we know the truth of the words we have sung. You alone can atone for sins. Jesus' righteousness alone can cover us. And yet we find too often in our own hearts what we will see in the heart of our brother and fellow servant of long ago, Elijah, a man of like passions with us, who tended to look to his own works and uh, lose the joy of salvation for a time. Father, keep our eyes focused on Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Our text is 1 Kings 19. I'll be reading verses 1 through 18. I've entitled this meditation, Jealous for God and Sorry for Myself, because I think you'll hear in Elijah a very different mindset from what we just heard as we sang the words of Horatius Bonar. Hear God's word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, it came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. May he write it on our hearts. Well, with next year's Olympic Games already much in the news, perhaps some of you are remembering the uh, TV commercials that ran in previous times of Olympic Games, showing a gold medal winner celebrating after the victory and then asked, what are you going to do now? And, of course, the answer is always, I'm going to Disneyland. You don't remember that. I'm going to Disneyland to celebrate. That's, that's really not quite where Elijah is in the aftermath of the Lord's great victory over the 450 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, recorded for us in the previous chapter. After Baal, the Canaanite storm god had remained mute and impotent, really non-existent, as his worshipers slashed their bodies hour after hour. Finally, it was Elijah's turn, the Lord's turn, to show what the Lord could do. And a simple prayer, a blazing bolt of fire from heaven, and suddenly the waterlogged sacrifice and altar of the Lord went up in smoke and steam in an instant. And the Israels got the point. They cried out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Or at least they seemed to get the point. We'll see. The prophets of Baal, who had lured the hearts of God's people away from their loving divine husband, were gathered together and slain, all 450 of them, down by the brook that very afternoon. And as icing on the cake, the Lord lifted the drought and the famine that had lasted for the last three and a half years, and suddenly the rain poured down. And King Ahab was struck to his heart, and he went home, and he divorced Jezebel, his wife, and put her to death for leading Israel into idolatry. No, that last part didn't happen. I'm sorry. He didn't, as a matter of fact. Should have, but he didn't. Instead, we read that decisive leader, as Ahab is, he goes home and tattles to his wife about the fire from the Lord and what Elijah did to her prophets, and Jezebel repented and asked forgiveness. No, no, that's not right either. I'm sorry. That's not what happened either. No, she put out a contract on Elijah's life, as you heard. But the prophet who had withstood 450 of the prophets of Baal and executed them by the brook, he stood before the queen and boldly confronted her. No, that doesn't happen either. Elisha runs. He turns tail. 
spiritual superhero of 1 Kings 18 hears a word of threat from the Phoenician queen of Israel. And he turns tail and he runs. In fact, the Hebrew is very stark in verse 3. He feared, he rose, he ran for his life. What's going on here? Now we can understand Ahab and Jezebel, their hardness of heart, because the Bible tells us over and over that human beings are so stubborn and defiantly committed to the lie of our own independence and the lies of the pseudo-gods that unless God's spirit sovereignly breaks in, we will never turn around. We will not come to life. We'll stay dead. Even as we marry and work and plan and play, we'll stay dead unless God's spirit intervenes. But what's up with Elijah? What's happening to this bold prophet? Those of you who've had some experience in ministry may suspect what's going on here. I remember when I was ordained to the ministry of the word in the Presbytery of New Jersey, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, 34 years ago, I asked Pastor Bob Atwell to bring the charge to me as a newly ordained pastor. I knew Pastor Atwell as as one of the pastors in the North Jersey Church in Westfield. I knew him uh, and his reputation for passion for the Lord and hard work and love for God's people. And I knew that he would give me some memorable things to, re, to, uh, to take me into ministry. And they, he gave me a number of memorable things, only one of which I can remember now, sadly. But maybe it was the one I needed most at the time. And it was, on Monday morning, mow your lawn. See, there were probably other things more important. But that's his point. On Monday morning, mow your lawn. The rationale was, by the end of the Sabbath, by the end of the Lord's Day... You will have poured out your heart and your energy into teaching and preaching the word of God. Your prayers and your labors will have been focused on that ministry and longing to see God's grace impact people and change their lives. And quite often, not always, but often, you're not going to see a lot of that fruit. You're going to go to bed Sunday night and wake up Monday morning wondering whether anything of eternal significance occurred as God's people gathered for worship and heard the word of God the day before. So he said, get up on Monday morning and mow your lawn. That way, at least, you can do one task that yields immediate, visible results. <laughs> now, as I've shared with some of you, what I used to do was to get up on Monday morning and listen to the tape of the sermon the day before. Never do that. You're already low and discouraged, and then to hear how badly you preach, you don't want to do that. Mow your lawn instead. So this is what Elijah should have done. He shouldn't have run... T- run to the south, and he, he shouldn't have gone to Disneyland. He should have mowed his lawn. No, no, that wasn't Dr. Reverend Atwell's point either. That's not the real solution. Um, but he did want to emphasize that as you engage in other people's lives with the grace of the gospel, there's going to be a lot of planting and watering before you see seedlings. And sometimes what seem to be signs of life in the seedlings is going to wither under the sun And at best, the harvest is a long way off, so be prepared for some times when it's hard and discouraging. Well, what is Elijah's problem and what is God's remedy? If we can discover these, the encounter of the prophet at the Mount of God is going to fortify us for the Monday morning doldrums and the post-Carmel pits 
of self-pity. Elijah's problem, I think, can be seen in his twofold answer to the Lord's question, what are you doing here? And I would paraphrase it this way. I gave it my all, Lord, and although you may have won a battle, you lost the war. He begins by lamenting, says, Lord, take away my life. That may sound suicidal, but realize that Elijah is not about to take his own life. He wants the Lord to do it. He's given his all. He's taken as much as he can. He says, enough. It hasn't worked. And you see it unpacked in that answer that he gives when he gets to Horeb, to Sinai, the Mount of God, and God asks him twice, what are you doing here? I've been jealous, very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Identical words in verse 10, and again in response to God coming in the gentle whisper in verse 14. Now here's a deeply conflicted man. He wants the Lord to take his life, or so he says in verse 4, But by the time we get to verses 10 and 14, he's not so happy with the prospect of his life being taken away, at least not by Jezebel and her henchmen. But the main point, of course, of his whining is that he's tried so hard and he's done so much. With jealousy, I have been jealous for the Lord. That's his point. With zeal, I have been zealous for your glory. He's done so much. And the God of hosts has done so little. And he does refer to the Lord as the God of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven. The title that portrays the Lord as the invincible general who commands all of the armies of heaven, who leads them to victory over his every enemy. And Elijah's implying if the Lord really is the God of the armies of heaven, the God of hosts, how can his own people abandon his covenant and rip down his altars and slaughter his messengers in cold blood. It's almost as though his lament is turning Horatius Bonar's hymn kind of upside down. My works, not thine, O Lord. Well, you can't go further than that because it doesn't speak gladness to his heart at all, does it? It's because you haven't worked, Lord, that there's nothing to be glad about here at all. And I'm all by myself. I'm the only one left. In the age-old warfare between the spirit, between the, the serpent and the seed of the woman, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, it feels to Elijah as if the seed of the woman is narrowed down, has been cut down to one. It's Elijah. Now he's forgotten some things about the promise to the line of David, but he says, I'm the only one left. And when I throw in the towel and you take me out of this miserable, sin-cursed world, then the game will be over and, Lord, you will have lost. You may never face, I hope you won't, a bleak sense of utter failure the way Elijah felt here. I pray that you don't face that. But if you should ever come anywhere close to as low as Elijah is at this point, Do remember this, even in his disappointment and his self-pity and his hopelessness, he is talking to the Lord, and better yet, the Lord is talking to him, because God has a solution, and the solution is found in bread in the wilderness, 
the voice at the mountain, and a glimpse of the future. Bread in the wilderness. The echoes of this text going back to the ministry of Moses in the wilderness are uh, many. The angel of the Lord provides bread and water in the wilderness so the servant of the Lord can travel 40 days and nights. That number 40 sounds familiar, doesn't it? Reflecting Israel's 40 years. He meets the Lord at Horeb, the mount of God, where Moses saw God's glory and received the Lord's covenant. My own Hebrew professor in ancient times, the late Ray Dillard at Westminster, Philadelphia, wrote even more parallels between Moses and Elijah in his little book, Faith in the Face of Apostasy. Dr. Dillard wrote, Moses had encountered God at Mount Sinai, and now God leads Elijah to the same place. There, Elijah, like Moses, would experience the presence of God in the wind, earthquake, and fire. The cave where Elijah took refuge reminds us of the cleft in the rock that concealed Moses. On that same mountain, God passed by both men, and both avoided looking at God. Both were sent back to their tasks, their commissions to serve God renewed. Both Moses and Elijah complained that they had had enough and asked God to take their lives, and God appointed prophets as help for each. So those echoes that Dr. Diller pointed out reinforce, I think, the astonishing patience and mercy of God here with this wayward prophet. As Ian Proven notes in his commentary on, uh, on this passage, Elijah is acting a little bit too much like another prophet, like, to quote Proven, the anti-hero, Jonah, traveling to a far-flung place without a travel permit, Earlier, of course, Elijah has traveled outside of Israel to Zarephath, but that was in response to the word of the Lord. This time he's AWOL. He's absent without leave. He has no moral high ground to stand on when he accuses God of letting him down. And yet God's first word to him is not rebuke. It's not even the probing, calm question, what are you doing here? It is get up and eat. And again, get up and eat. The journey is too great for you. God gives bread and water to somebody who's trying to run away from him. And just as the Lord's angel feeds Elijah twice, so at Mount Sinai, God asks the calm question twice, what are you doing here? And twice endures Elijah's self-pitying, self-glorifying, God-accusing tirade. I've done my part, Lord, what's the matter with you? But God's purposes in grace come to sharpest focus as the Lord passes by Elijah's cave, preceded first by granite-shattering gale-forth wind and ground-shivering earthquake and consuming fire, but about each of them we read the Lord was not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. And it's not as though those terrifying displays of God's power and holiness are inappropriate revelations of God's presence. Moses, in fact, did see God come down on Mount Sinai in earth-trembling, shaking power and the terrifying power of the storm. But this time, Elijah needs to hear another side of God after wind and earthquake and fire, a gentle voice, a whisper. This expression appears only two other times in the Bible, Psalm 107 and Job 4, and both times it's almost silence. It's so quiet. Almost can't be heard, and that's God's point. Elijah, 
Do not gauge your success in serving me by the fireworks, by hurricane or seismic activity or lightning from heaven or a sudden emotional response of the people of Israel that seems as if they've gotten the point. I also speak in words of life-changing power in a quiet whisper. And I work in ways almost imperceptible to people like you, Elijah, people who are so sure that their personal perspectives give them a global grasp of how the great war between the serpent and the seed of the woman is really going. And the voice at the mountain gives a glimpse of the future. First, the close future. A new generation of leaders will be instruments in the Lord's hand to accomplish his plan and pursue his kingdom. He's to anoint Hazael to be king of Syria, Jehu to become king of Israel, uh, who will, by the way, assassinate Abram's, Ahab's son and Ahab's widow, Jezebel. And finally, most importantly, most importantly, Elisha, as Elijah's successor, the spokesman for the king of kings. So the Lord is sovereign not just over Israel, but over Israel's neighbors. And he uses not only a faithful prophet like Elisha, but also pagans like Hazael and murderous rebels like Jehu to execute the curses of his covenant on a wayward people. It's not out of control, but the sweetest word, the sweetest word that the Lord whispers to Elijah in that moment of terrifying stillness is that the thirsty swords of Hazael and Jehu and even the indicting divine word that will be given to Elisha will not utterly consume the Lord's people, will not erase from the earth the seed of the woman. See, unbeknownst to Elijah, he's not so alone after all. Even in the apostate northern kingdom, there are still 7,000 who haven't bent the knee to Baal and haven't kissed his idol. And those 7,000 are a preview of a more distant future. That's why Paul quotes this text in Romans 11 as part of the basis for his comfort and assurance in the face of the widespread rejection of the good news of Messiah Jesus by his own Israelite kinsmen, God has his people. God preserves his remnant. And God will fulfill his promises. See, the problem, at least in part, was that in his frustration with God's quiet methods, Elijah had failed to recognize that he, Elijah, was not the solitary seed of the woman. Sure, he was zealous for the Lord, but he was not the one who was actually entitled to take the words of Psalm 69 on his own lips, zeal for your house will consume me. John tells us in John 2, verse 17, those words belong to Jesus. The day would come when the enemies of God would circle like jackals around the solitary, faithful servant of the Lord as he was hanging alone on a cross. Then Satan thought that his day of triumph had come, as Elijah feared that it had come centuries before. Satan thought, I'll kill the son and the world will be mine. Satan's a fool. (laughs) In slaying the seed of the woman, the devil sealed his own demise because Jesus, the seed of the woman, died and dropped like a grain of seed in the ground. A countless crop of children are being born by grace into the family of God even today. Jesus is God's gentle whisper, crucified in weakness, raised in power, 
not recognized by the powers of this world. But Jesus is the one in whom the secret power of God is at work. And as Paul observes in in Romans, Jesus not only holds a tiny remnant of Israelites fast, but he reaches out and incorporates into this blessed, holy remnant of believers people from every nation. Paul says in Romans 10, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God calls in his quiet whisper that we might call on his name for salvation. So today we have sung in a tongue of the nations, thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, Shall I flee? When your ministry is hit as you think rock bottom, look away from yourself to Jesus and his finished work. Let's pray. Father, encourage our hearts. Rescue us from self-pity. Rescue us from the blind resentment that sometimes even creeps into our hearts at the way you do your work. Rescue us from discouragement when our ministries encounter setbacks of various kinds. And we know that the only rescue for us in those times is to look away from our efforts, away from visible fruit, away to the cross of Christ, to his works, his death, his righteousness. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.